0: The old pilot's plain tales. Sweet retirement. Built by Fairchild Republic and nicknamed the Warthog, or just Hog, but more formally known as the Thunderbolt II, it was named after the Republic P 47 Thunderbolt, a long serving World War II fighter bomber with a fine combat record. The Thunderbolt II, on the other hand, was designed for one purpose only, for close air support of friendly troops, attacking armoured vehicles, tanks and the like. It was needed to replace the SPAD, the A1 Skyradar, which had done such sterling service during the Vietnam War but was considered well out of date. The A10 would have much superior firepower, great protection for the pilot but still have many of the SPAD's qualities, such as a short takeoff and landing run and the ability to absorb significant amounts of damage. Its simple design would enable maintenance with minimal facilities. The proposal was for an aircraft that could help to counter the threat of Soviet armoured forces that might pour across the West German plain. To say that the Warthog was designed around its gun wouldn't be an exaggeration. And when Pierre Spray, a defence analyst and member of the Air Force's fighter mafia, was given the task of writing the specifications, he indicated that the ideal aircraft should have a long loiter time, low-speed maneuverability, extreme survivability, and a massive cannon. With this in mind, a separate proposal was put out for a new 30mm cannon with both a high rate of fire and high muzzle velocity. General Electric and Philco Ford took up the challenge and their work led to the awe-inspiring Gao 8. So substantial that it takes up 16% of the A-10's unladen weight, it measures nearly 19 and a half feet Almost six meters in length. Its seven 30 millimeter barrels, powered by two independent hydraulic systems, rotate so fast that the cannon usually delivers 3,900 rounds per minute and can do even more a massive payload of shells that vary from armour-piercing, incendiary projectiles, high-explosive rounds and depleted uranium-penetrating cores. At this speed, it takes 18 seconds of continuous fire to empty the magazine. The shells are almost a foot, nearly 30 centimetres in length, and weigh over one and a half pounds, about 0.7 of a kilo each. Apart from having twice the range, half the time to target, and three times the mass of projectiles fired by the more common M61 Vulcan cannon, this remarkable weapon is also extremely accurate. It has an 80% dispersion of only 5 mils, which, at its design range of 4,000 feet, that's 1,200 metres, means that 80% of rounds will fall within a 40-foot, a 12-metre, circle. The weight and inertia of the ammunition is such that gravity drop is very small, only 10 feet, that's 3 metres, over a flight of three-quarters of a mile. Carrying such a mighty weapon does have some disadvantages – The volume of smoke from the gun is copious and contains no oxygen, so if it enters the engines it can flame them out. As such, when the gun fires, the engine igniters also run. Because the mass of fired rounds has the potential to push the entire aircraft off course, the centre of the gun has been shifted slightly to the left. This ensures that the active barrel is exactly on the centerline of the fuselage when it fires. The A-10 was first used in combat during the Gulf War in 1991 and proved to be very effective, destroying more than 900 Iraqi tanks, 2,000 other military vehicles and 1,200 artillery pieces. It even shot down two Iraqi helicopters. It was on an anti-tank mission that we join Rob Sweet in his much-beloved hog. The war had been going on for a month, and Rob's mission was to hunt down Republican Guard tanks about 80 miles north of the Q80 border. It was his 30th mission of the war, and he was being led by Captain Stephen Phyllis, both of them from the 353rd Tactical Fighter Squadron. They were both a little tense, as they would be operating a long way from help should things go wrong. As they arrived in the target area, both aircraft came under heavy enemy fire, so Sweet and Phyllis followed their standing orders and turned around to exit this hot spot. As they navigated clear, their eyes caught something new a row of Republican Guard tanks that looked as if they had not yet been hit. A surprise to both Sweet and Phyllis, because the United States had been relentlessly bombing the Iraqis for 30 straight days. Unable to pass up this opportunity, they attacked. Up to that point, Sweet said, although a number of aircraft had been hit and damaged, they had only lost one A-10, so there was generally a feeling of invulnerability amongst the pilots. Having dropped his cluster bombs, Sweet was pulling away from the target at 13,000 feet when he heard a loud bang. His aircraft shuddered and quickly went out of control. He'd been hit by an Iraqi SA-13 groundware missile. Looking back, he could see that he was on fire, so he made a bit of a panicky call to his flight lead. Hey, I'm hit, out of control, can't get it under control, and he swore. As he looked down, he saw the ground rushing up, so at 6,000 feet he ejected, coming down right on top of the headquarters of the Medina Republican Guards and about 20 yards from a T-72 tank. After hearing stories of captured troops being boiled in oil, guys talked about riding their aircraft in rather than being captured, Sweet said. Memories of what Vietnam POWs went through his head, but he realised that if you ride it in, you know you're going to die. If you punch out, at least you have a shot at surviving. He felt defeated as he pulled the ejector seat handle, having survived to his 30th mission. In his chute, he drifted right into the area he had been attacking, landing amongst a bunch of enemy troops who climbed out of holes and ran up to him. He didn't even have time to stand up after his parachute landing before they were on him. These guys had been bombed for days on end, so this was their chance for some payback, and they wailed on him hard. He was being kicked and taking rifle butts to the head, but luckily some officers came up and shooed away the Iraqi troops. He was dragged into a vehicle and taken to an underground bunker for an initial interrogation. Sweet was taken into a room of high-ranking Iraqi officers. He was in pretty bad shape now, covered in his own blood from the beating, when a younger officer came in and put a cluster bomblet right down in front of him, shouting in a language he didn't understand. The A-10s had been dropping a mix of cluster bombs, some with different fuse delays, to hit troops who came out of shelter to take a look around. He had no idea how long it had been since they dropped these and was wondering if this one was still live. He didn't make a scene thinking that if it went off, at least it would take them all out. It took two days to get him to Baghdad, and for most of that time he was in an army truck in broad daylight. As an A-10 pilot, he knew just how vulnerable they were to friendly fire, and he wondered if an A-10 might take them out. They drove him around, tied up and blindfolded, and every now and then they would stop. There would be some talking and shouting, and then someone would smack him in the head. He ended up at a prison they called the Baghdad Biltmore, where he left the care of the army and was handed over to what was probably the Mukhabarat, the General Directorate of Intelligence. In their hands, his treatment went downhill fast. A lot of interrogations, beatings, threats with guns to the head and the like. He wasn't asked for a lot of technical information, Some tactical questions, like when the ground war was going to start. Mainly, they wanted to know what religion he was, how many Israeli pilots they had in the Air Force, political questions like his opinion of Saddam Hussein, and theological questions. A shelter full of civilians had recently been bombed, and they brought in a man whose wife and kids had died, and said that he was going to kill him now. They wanted to know which pilot had done the bombing. Of course Sweet had no idea, but this one event caused him no end of beatings and directed much anger towards him. Again and again they put a gun to his head, and as he tried to shy away they pulled the trigger. There would be a loud click as the hammer fell onto an empty breech. Eventually, Sweet realized that they probably weren't going to kill him. They were bluffing about that, something he put down to his relative junior rank of lieutenant. It also became apparent that even though they were frequently roughing him up, they were going to keep him alive. Food was worse now, only once a day, basically a starvation diet with very little water, which was even worse than the hunger. They continued to beat him, and then questioned him. But as often as not, he fell back on his junior rank and claimed ignorance. This wasn't too hard, as he was the only lieutenant they had captured, and most of the pilots they held were captains or apart. He revealed that he was an A-10 pilot, but since he'd landed right next to his wreckage, that was pretty obvious. He didn't know when the ground war was going to start, He said that that decision was going to be up to the President, but they got very angry and didn't believe him. They claimed to have shot President Bush and wounded the First Lady, but Sweet wasn't taken in by their lies. He replied by saying that was very sad, but now Dan Quayle would be in charge and he was likely to use nuclear weapons. He could never be openly rude because they would beat the hell out of him, but he did what he could to keep his spirits up. They liked to hit his head with a cupped hand until eventually they burst his eardrum. When he blew his nose later, he found that snot and mucus was coming out of the damaged ear. During one interrogation, he had surgical tape put over his eyes and handcuffed very tight while they beat his legs with a rubber pipe. They stayed away from his face after the first few videos that they took of people like the RAF Tornado crew, John Peters and John Nickel, backfired. Their obvious injuries had created such an uproar around the world, highlighting the awful treatment that downed airmen were being subjected to that they shied away from it. Being held alone in a dark room for so long led to some strange hallucinations, particularly when Sweet thought his own cat had walked into his cell and it took mental discipline to stay away from such things. By now he could only sleep on one side because of a particularly bad beating with a rubber hose. The trick questions and psychological propaganda that they fed Sweet Seemed pretty easy to work out. Then the Biltmore was bombed, so they were moved to the Bathist Party headquarters, which was another strategic target, and he was in there when that was bombed as well. It was a horrifying experience. They were on the third floor, and bombs were coming in through the roof and blowing up in the basement. He was in a tiny, solid cell with a small slit window at the top, A bomb went off nearby which knocked dust and plaster into his precious water. He was a bit annoyed until a second bomb exploded which concussed him and knocked him completely across the cell and the whole ceiling fell down onto his legs. Inexplicably, he was left almost uninjured and he managed to crawl into the corner of his cell to shelter under his thin blanket. Two more bombs hit and the air was so thick with dust and cordite fumes he could hardly breathe. Everyone was yelling to each other through their damaged doors and walls. Somebody was asking who was bombing them, and a British voice dryly replied, It's the bloody Americans, so I'm sitting here with my bowl on my head. They were taken to another prison, a civilian place, and locked in, all the Americans together. This was when Sweet found out that his flight lead had also been shot down and killed. It was a real low point for him, knowing that his friend had died. This place was where everyone got ill from the food and water. They were only there four days until they heard small arms shooting outside, which was apparently because the war was over and they thought they'd won. Sweet got an RAF roommate with a broken leg, but now the attitude of their captors was starting to change and they began to try to make the prisoners look smarter, shaving them and giving them access to a medic. Then, remarkably, they moved them into a four-star hotel. There was no power but they were in their own rooms, and a lady from the International Red Cross was there to advise them that they were going to be repatriated. Sweet had been living on pure adrenaline for twenty days, and now he was eating chocolate and in a hot bath. When he tried to get out of the black water, what he had been through suddenly hit him, and he couldn't even stand. He crawled out on his hands and knees. The very next day they flew them out. Swede ended up in a hospital ship where the first thing he did was phone home and he got an answering machine. They were actually there but were screening their calls and at last he was able to give his loving family the news that he was alive. It came as an enormous relief as the whole time he had been posted as missing in action so his family had no idea if he was dead or alive. Of the six A-10s shot down during the war, two were on Sweet's mission. As he said, it was a trying experience, but you're pretty much along for the ride. When he returned to his unit, he discovered that Captain Phyllis, in an attempt to take attention away from Sweet, had been trying to draw away enemy fire when he was shot down. Gillis was killed in action and was posthumously awarded the Silver Star. Over the years, Sweet admits to suffering some problems like survivor's guilt, something that took him a long time to overcome. Lieutenant Colonel Rob Sweet, after a 33-year career flying the Warthog, completed his final flight only a few days ago on the 5th of June 2021 at Moody Air Force Base, Georgia. As he climbed out of the aircraft, he was met with a shower of champagne. I don't regret going over there, fighting and getting shot down, Sweet said. That's what I took an oath to do. The Air Force Chief of Staff, General Charles Brown, said, with your retirement, it will be the first time in the history of our Air Force that we will not have a former POW survey. Thank you for all that you've done. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. If you enjoy Plane Tales, be very grateful if you would leave a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks.